0: This episode is brought to you by the all-new TaylorMade Stealth 2 driver. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance, but there's actually two things, distance and forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. Greg, on Sunday morning, when you awoke with a six-shot lead, what was it like for you before you played? Uh, like any other day or any other tournament that I had a lead or a near the lead or a chance to win. Once you got the fourth round underway, when did you get an indication that things just didn't feel right? It's hard to, really is hard to explain, Jimmy, unless you've really been there. But, um, but I can honestly say when I missed that chip on 15, um, it was the first time the whole week my body just went limp you know, walking to the next tee, I really felt extremely drained. It didn't go in, you know, have you ever had that feeling where all of a sudden you go, oh, like this, you know, and that's exactly what it was. And, and it was like my mind left my body and my body left my mind on that. Next there tee. is a so part of really, the Greg Norman career story, the big on. overarching narrative that I find extremely interesting. And it's that often when you hear it told, the storyteller, whoever that is, will leave something out. Or sometimes they'll leave a lot out. I was reminded of that earlier this week when I rewatched the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary Shark came out last year. It's all about Norman from his childhood leading up to the main event, which is also our main event today, the famous collapse at Augusta in 1996 when he lost the Masters to Nick Faldo despite holding a six-shot lead heading into Sunday. That's one of the biggest comebacks I have ever experienced, ever. Not that coming from 6 back. But what he run by. Oh, well, what a great moment. These two warriors who have battled so many times. I'll tell you one thing. You go to the dictionary and look up the word class, and you'll see a picture of Greg Norman or Cluster. And what I found so interesting about this documentary it was about 75 minutes long, were the decisions about what to include, about what happens in their version of the story. And in particular, about what doesn't happen at the end. The documentary builds and builds. It's very good. Eventually, we see the nightmare play out at Augusta. There's some talk about how well Norman handled himself afterward in an impossible situation. Talks about how good his life is. And then the whole thing's over. What they don't get into is that he got close again three years later in 1999. This time, he lost to Jose Maria Oathabel, not nearly as dramatic in fact, he was trailing by a shot heading into the final round that year, but he did have another chance to win the Masters. And it's not the only heartbreak they left out. They didn't mention the 93 PGA Championship, where he blew another 54-hole lead, missed a four-foot putt in the playoff, lost to Paul Azinger. They also didn't mention 2008. Remember that one? Norman came out of nowhere as an older man to lead the Open Championship by two shots after 54 holes, a shot a 77 on the last day. That's three pretty interesting omissions there. And it wasn't like the directors were protecting him. To some degree, yes, this was a sympathetic portrayal, but in terms of his major collapses, they didn't really spare you anything before that. They go through most of the missed opportunities in painful detail. Bob Tway's bunker shot to beat him at the 86 PGA Championship, Larry Mize getting in with the chip in at the 87 Masters, the US Open collapse at Shinnecock in 95. They do just about everything. And I remember thinking as I rewatched it, I don't know the reason they don't mention the 99 Masters, the one with Thobble, even as a quick epilogue or postscript or whatever, or the 93 PGA or the 08 Open. But I wonder if it's because it's almost too much pain to be believable. That may sound strange because... Obviously, this is real life. They wouldn't be making anything up. You can verify it on Wikipedia if you want to. But it's like they reached a point in the drama where they said, nobody can suffer this much. It's overkill. We're leaving it out. Again, I don't know whether that's true. But it struck me and it put a thought in my head that I couldn't get rid of. Which is that the pain Greg Norman suffered on the golf course through the course of his career is so intense and so numerous that it's almost unreal. Unreal. And yes, let's keep that in context. When we talk about pain, we're talking about a sport. When we talk about Greg Norman, we're talking about a successful millionaire. There are worse things that can happen. And it would be easy to say, I don't feel bad for this guy. I actually do feel a lot of sympathy for Norman. But let's be clear, he's not starving on the street here. Still, if Greg Norman were a fictional character you were creating from scratch, you would stop the story short of what life actually dealt him. If you're doing the documentary, you leave out some of the bad stuff because you get the sense that for a viewer, it would be too overwhelming. I don't know that we have an analog, a comparison point for Greg Norman in sports. We certainly don't have one in golf. There was maybe a point around, say, 1993 where you could have seen Phil Mickelson's career maybe go that way. But now Phil Mickelson is six majors because that's what players of Phil Mickelson's caliber usually do. And there's no doubt that Greg Norman was among the best players ever in the sport bar none man wins around 90 times in his career, 20 on the PGA tour 14 on the European tour, a bunch in Australia and Asia spent 331 weeks as the number one golfer in the world. Only one guy has beat that. And I don't need to tell you who he is. Golf is a sport where your career is judged to a very large degree on major victories for better or worse. But if it wasn't, Greg Norman would be esteemed far higher than he is today. Instead, he's defined by the majors. And to be more specific, he is defined by the majors he lost. Now, I think that's a point worth diving into, because it can be easy to forget that the man did win two majors. He won two open championships. Try to think of someone just off the top of your head who won two majors, where you think that was not nearly enough. There aren't many that fit the bill. Dustin Johnson might be the closest of the modern players, but as far as I'm concerned anyway, the narrative around Dustin Johnson kind of flailing in majors ended when he won his Masters. That immortalized him. That was it. You can think of a lot of guys with one major where you think, well, they should have won at least two. Sergio Garcia, Justin Rose, Adam Scott, maybe Davis Love if you go back a little, but even those guys pretty much get a pass. When you think of golfers who are treated and perceived like Norman, you have to go all the way down the list to the guys who never won a major. Lee Westwood, Luke Donald, Ricky Fowler. But I'm sorry, even those comparisons aren't so great because as good as they were, they didn't have the opportunities Norman had. The contrast of how good he was versus how little he won at the majors is so astounding that in terms of clutch play or success under pressure, he's almost a rung below... Very good players, former world number ones who never got a single major. It's a measure of how great he was. And what's painful about 1996 is that despite everything he went through, despite the fact that if you're a data nerd like I am, you might look at his career and say, anything less than about eight majors for this guy is a serious disappointment. The truth is that one Masters win, just one would have been enough finished in the top five nine times there, just needed one. It would have taken care of the entire narrative. I truly believe that. Considering what the guy went through, if he had won, the story that we tell about Greg Norman today would have been a story of redemption. God is green jacket. And that's another thing we have to reckon with when we talk about this. The tough question is, what do we do when one of the most compelling stories ever in our sport, or maybe in any sport, doesn't really offer any redemption or any obvious redemption, any immediate redemption. The 30 for 30 documentary tries to have that redemptive moment at the end. You know, what a great life I've got. It wouldn't change a thing. And that's nice. And it may even be true. But for me, it was the one part of the entire show that rang a little bit hollow. The one part I didn't really buy because the truth is when you frame an athlete's story around wins and losses and it's loss, 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 The natural sort of rhetorical device is that it ends with a win. It's only human to want that, and they tried to do it in a more symbolic way, as in, you know, Norman's life after golf is a win, his composure after a devastating loss is a win. They're looking for that win, trying to extract it almost any way they can. But they were always going to have to stretch, because on the course, that win just didn't exist. The story of Sunday at the 1996 Masters is excruciating. It's often compared to a car wreck, but a car wreck happens fast. This took hours. Any sport worth its salt can devastate its players, but there's no sport like golf that takes quite so long to do it. Why do we keep coming back to Norman at Augusta? Why are we doing it on a podcast now? Why can't we look away? I want to say it's because there's something to learn about the world, about humanity. Even if the thing we learn is something we don't like, we want to see it. We want to learn it anyway. Maybe there's safety in experiencing this vicarious pain from a distance. Norman is a stand-in for all of us. We can briefly feel what he felt, or at least think we do, and then move on with our lives. Greg Norman represents a feeling of prolonged, intense, competitive pain, that carries with it a certain amount of dread but what makes it so fascinating is that instead of avoiding it instead of burying it where it can't be seen instead of taking the comfortable path of comfortable ignorance we can't help ourselves we keep coming back the all new tailor made stealth 2 carbonwood has arrived completely redesigned with more carbon and even more forgiveness all of which translates to lots of long, straight drives and finding fairways even when you miss the sweet spot. When TaylorMade set out to improve on the original Stealth Carbonwood, we weaved in even more carbon to deliver distance and plenty of forgiveness. We call it Fargiveness. Catch that drive a little off the toe? Not a problem for the Stealth too. Just leave it to all that carbon to straighten things out. Hit your next drive off the heel, just stand back, admire your drive, and ask yourself, how the heel did I just carry that water hazard? That's far and it's all thanks to carbon. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit TaylorMadeGolf.com. I'm Shane Ryan. This is Local Knowledge. Today, as you have figured out, we are talking about Greg Norman and the 1996 Masters. This is part of what I'm starting to call, if only in my head, the dark Augusta era of local knowledge. Last time we told you about Charlie Harris, the man who drove his truck through the gates of Augusta, held seven people hostage, and tried to talk to Ronald Reagan. This time it's not quite so serious on a human level. No guns are involved, nobody's life is in danger, but a lot more people know about it. The Norman Collapse is to some degree, a public domain incident. Everybody has a share. We're all dealing from firsthand knowledge, even someone like me, who was 13 at the time it happened. But there were some sources that were particularly helpful for me as I looked back. I mentioned the 30 for 30 ESPN documentary, Shark. Greg that left the course on Saturday night wasn't the same Greg that showed up on Sunday. One of the greatest sports collapses ever. I remember how sick it made me feel. It just didn't want to watch. Would my life be different if I had a grain jacket? Which, as far as these things go, I think was pretty objective. They had Norman's involvement, but it was clear they told him, we're going to tell the real story. And there are parts of that where they get him going back to Augusta. They have him watching clips of the 96 round for the very first time since he played it. I think it's quite good. Sam Wyman, my editor and one of the producers of Local Knowledge, wrote a great book called Win It Losing. And there's a Greg Norman chapter in there, and you can find it on Golf Digest, the excerpt. It's really worth reading. It was very helpful both on the detail of what happened that day and the psychological side of things. And the other story I read, which I had only a dim memory of, was Rick Riley's Sports Illustrated feature on that day. And it's really, really good, I have to say. From the lead right to the end, it's one of those stories that shows Riley at his peak seems to have followed Norman after the round all the way to his car when he leaves the grounds on Sunday night. Just to take a line at almost random, when Nick Faldo hit the birdie putt to win, Riley says he doesn't quite know how to react, Faldo, and he describes him as looking like, quote, a man in the back of church who had won a clandestine hand of gin, end quote. How good is that? There were a lot more sources, but those three in particular were very helpful. So... Where to begin with Greg Norman? I think one of the interesting things about him is the contrast between how he looked and to some degree how he lived against the reality that he had an awful lot of trouble playing under pressure. Keep in mind that 96 was the seventh time he held a 54-hole lead at the majors. He'd only converted one of those before. Now, we as human beings cannot help but judge a book by its cover, at least... Till we get more information. And to me, Norman looks like the kind of guy you would cast as the villain in a movie set at, let's say, a ski resort. He's good-looking. He looks rich. He looks confident. He even looks arrogant at times. His manner could be aggressive. He could be funny, but it was a biting kind of humor. He had a reputation for getting into these tussles with journalists, that kind of thing. Doesn't look like somebody who would struggle under pressure. If you were typecasting him, you'd think he'd be a killer. And he was in certain circumstances. You don't win 90 times as a professional golfer without having a certain taste for blood. But something obviously changed for him in the majors. And I think we have to acknowledge now, pretty early in this discussion, that we're not going to get a great explanation for it. Norman doesn't have one. He didn't have a sports psychologist during his career. And as far as I can tell... We're not going to be able to arrive at an answer for the question of why this kept happening to him. You wonder if it's chemical. Some people change under pressure for the same reason that some other people get depressed. It's all in the brain. And you can't change it. Or it could be mechanical. Maybe there's something in Norman's Swing that works great under normal circumstances, but tends to get flimsy or unreliable when the really intense heat is on. More likely, it's some combination of... Maybe of those two things, maybe a million other different things we don't even know about, but it's absolutely not clear. And if you waved a magic wand back then and showed him exactly why it was happening, it's also not clear if he could have done anything about it. Norman grows up in the north of Queensland in Australia. Remember, the north in Australia is like our south. This is more of a tropical, might be too strong a term, but it's one of the few places in Australia with palm trees, for instance. His father is an electrical engineer who eventually starts his own business. His family owns a house close to the beach. They have a little cabin on an island also. And Norman as a kid is constantly outdoors. He's on the water, surfing, skin diving, fishing, horseback riding. He is very much a child of the Great Barrier Reef. His mom, Tony, was the golfer in the family. At one point, she was good enough that she won a television in an event she played. But he didn't pick it up for a very long time. In fact, it was after they moved to Brisbane, the city, and it seems like Norman was in a place where he was missing his friends. He was missing the outdoors and that whole lifestyle. So one day he went out with his mom, he caddied for her, and that's when he started to fall in love with golf. But he was almost 16 then, which, if you know anything about your modern PGA Tour Pro, that is a very, very late age to get into the sport. Right now, if somebody came on the scene and they said, I started golf at 16, even if they were a, you know, journeyman, a mediocre PGA Tour golfer, you'd say that's exceptional to have someone like Norman, who became one of the great players ever in the sport. at 16 is really beyond anything I think we've ever heard, but he was a junkie instantly along with playing all the time. He read every Jack Nicklaus instructional book. He could get his hands on won't surprise you to know he was an unbelievable talent almost from the start within 18 months. He was a scratch golfer. Eat your heart out, fellow rec players like me. He turned pro at 21, and he won his first professional event less than five years after discovering the game. That is a remarkable trajectory. And as with many things with Norman, I don't really think we have a comparison point. Now, that first win he ever got as a pro is an interesting one to look at in hindsight. It was his fifth tournament ever, which shows how good he was. He almost won several of the first four, but this one, he truly broke out. It was in Adelaide in South Australia. He goes 64-67-66 on the first three days, and he's got a 10-shot lead going into the final round. And that last round is wild. He makes five birdies, but he also makes five bogeys, and a double bogey to end up with a 74. David Graham, an Aussie who would go on to win two majors of his own, you can think of him as you know a little bit the opposite of Norman in the sense that... He really punched above his weight by winning those two majors. On that day he came within four strokes of Norman at one point. But Norman did hold on to win. And the quote from him after was, It's been a great experience and now I know what to do. I think. So that's pretty interesting. You know, you hear the phrase the you know, the storytelling phrase, the end is in the beginning. And you look at that and say, boy, isn't that story, even though he won, isn't that story reminiscent? some things to come okay well in terms of winning norman did know what to do he was right he joined the european tour the next year he got his first european win that year at the martini international this is 1977. keeps winning all over australia he wins the french open in 1980. 1981 he finishes fourth in the masters his very first masters he partnered with jack nicholas in one of the rounds nicholas could tell he was miserable and nervous And he calmed him down. He put his arm around him and he said, Greg, I hope you're as nervous as I am. And Norman would later say it was one of the most joyous rounds of golf he ever played. Nicholas calmed him right down. Now, around this time, he was emerging on the scene internationally. People all over, including America, were starting to learn who this guy was. And at one point, he gets the nickname the Great White Shark. Didn't give it to himself, but it's a perfect Perfect bit of branding. Jaws was huge right around then. It was, you know, foremost in the in the cultural mind. Everybody wanted to know more about sharks. Norman, of course, was a beach kid. He had blonde hair. He was a surfer. So it was a pretty natural fit and a pretty great nickname. He further cements his brand with that iconic hat he always wore. By 1982, he was the leading money winner on the European Tour, starting to really accumulate wins. Joined the PGA Tour in 83, brought his game to America. And won for the first time there in 84 at the Kemper Open. The most famous year of his professional career was coming next. That was 1986, the year he led every single major after 54 holes. They called that the Saturday Slam. Kind of a devastating term there. And what you've got to keep in mind with Norman is that while he's winning and while his star is rising, there is already the sense You know, it's a low-lying sense at this point. Obviously, it's going to crescendo. Already the sense that this guy is not necessarily at his best at the majors or in other big events when he's under pressure. And that's even before 1986. In the documentary Shark, Brandel Chambly spoke about this and how there already was, quote, the paradoxical tug-of-war between technique and mind, end quote. So how does this play out? Well... At the 1984 U.S. Open, where he shoots 69 in the final round, buries a 40-foot bomb on the 18th hole to make an 18-hole playoff with Fuzzy Zeller. That doesn't seem like somebody who chokes, does it? But the next day, he shoots 75. Zeller wins by eight shots. Maybe a little hint of what's to come there. So that brings us to 86, the Masters, and there are a couple ways to look at this tournament. Norman, of course, leads going to the final round. He's up by one over a group of golfers that includes Seve Ballesteros, already a two-time winner, and he's the one with Norman in the final group. Norman led by as many as two shots on the front nine. Ballesteros got to eight under. Norman made double bogey on ten to fall to five under, so he's pretty well off the lead at a certain point. Now, this tournament, of course, if you know your golf history, is famous for what Jack Nicklaus did. Seemingly past his prime in his 40s, he shoots 30 on the back 9 to win. But what's often forgotten is that Norman, who had seemingly played himself out of it on the 10th hole, birdies 14, then 15, then 16, then 17. Four birdies in a row, and with Nicholas in the clubhouse at 9-under, here he comes, Norman, to the 18th, tied for the lead. A birdie wins it. Well now, can it all rests on those broad shoulders of Greg Norman. Well, destiny will take its stand right now, and what, whether it will be Jack Nicholas or Greg Norman, only Greg Norman now can determine that. And if you're looking for a moment when the legend of Greg Norman, the guy who can't hack it under pressure, begins, starts to be acknowledged in a big way, this is probably it. Because after a safe drive, he has about 187 yards in, decides he's going to take a sort of cut four iron instead of a full five iron, and just butchers it. Look out, right side. Look out, right gallery. Way back into the gallery. To the gallery. Right of the bunker. Is faced with one of the most difficult little pitches down the hill you ever saw, and there's the dejection that you see. Puts it right into the gallery. Peter Costas on the dock had a quote that says the first sign of pressure is poor decisions. The second is poor execution. And here you had both. The ball. Again, goes into the gallery. He can't save par. Jack Nicklaus wins. So the question is, did he choke? Or did he play pretty darn well under pressure to even be in that situation? Four birdies again on 14 through 17. Or did he choke earlier, blow a great chance to win because he couldn't step on it early in his round? I think all three might be to some degree correct. It gets into the paradox that is Norman because these failures don't all happen the same way. This is not going to be the same as what we see in 96. Okay, so 86 goes on. Shinnecock, the U.S. Open. He shoots 75 in the final round to blow his next 54-hole lead. Got heckled so bad by the New York fans that he actually confronted one of them and said, meet me in the parking lot, which couldn't have helped him. But he wins at Turnberry at the Open Championship, gets his first major, and there he shoots 63 in the final round. Nicholas actually gave him a tip beforehand that day. He said, lighten up your grip and it seemed to work. So we know he can do it. It's not impossible. In fact, by the numbers, it's one of the greatest final rounds that a major champion has ever shot. And you can imagine how after that, win, there was an urge to believe that Norman had figured it out, this was the thing that was going to change the trajectory of his career. Probably Norman himself wanted to believe that. Then the PGA championship comes He's got a four-shot lead after 54 holes, which means he has now led every major on Saturday within a single year, but he shot a 76. Bob Tway hold out from the bunker on 18 to beat him. 1987 Masters, the very next major. Larry Mize, second hole of the playoff against Norman. Mize is way off the green. Norman's on the fringe. Mize pitches from 45 yards away. It goes in. Mize, thinking only of getting the ball close. He's got it online. An amazing shot. Rolling, rolling. It's the shot heard throughout his hometown. Norman doesn't make his putty, loses. And he admits after that tournament, he was so devastated, he went to the beach in Florida where he lived and he just cried. Even after 96, he would continue to say that was his most devastating loss. And this gets into a foundational question of the Norman mystique or the anti-mystique, which is, is he historically unlucky? You've got the Tway hole out, the Lyle hole out. Two straight majors of heartbreak. There are other examples and minor events of people hitting these miracle shots to beat him. And you think, well, maybe early on it all could have been different if these ridiculously lucky shots didn't go in. But hold on a second, because that's not the real full story here. Chamblee and Costas in the Shark documentary make the excellent point that, okay, yeah, Tway gets a lucky hole out. Mize, same thing at the Masters. But at the PGA, Norman shot 76. At Augusta in 87, he made three bogeys on the back nine. You're not going to win a green jacket that way. Or at the very least, you're opening yourself to crazy things happening. Even when you look at his second shot on 11, which was the playoff hole where Mize chipped in, Norman went second. So he saw what Mize had done. He's right in the middle of the fairway, not very far away. And he plays it so safe. Barely even hits the green on what looks today like a pretty easy shot, especially with the other guy in serious trouble. You think Tiger in that position would go conservative? I mean, maybe slightly, but he's going to give himself a birdie look because he knows there's no guarantee Mize won't at least make par. And it sounds like Norman, even to this day, is already assuming the bogey. Now, everybody who's ever played match play, I care whether you're Ian Poulter or, or you're me going out with your friends on a weekend, and, you know, a playoff is essentially match play, everybody who's done it knows you always assume the other guy is going to make it. In other words, you know, there's a story to tell that he only has himself to blame. But if you believe Chambly and if you believe someone like Bobby Clampett, Norman started to tell himself the story that, yes, he was unlucky. He was a victim. That's not a helpful way to approach it because it takes away accountability. Put yourself as a, you know, just a a poor creature being tossed around by the winds of fate. And what do you do if you're a victim of fate? The answer is you can't do anything. Whereas if you look in the mirror and say, okay, I need to figure this out because this is on me, that's a different ballgame, isn't it? Reminded me a little of Sergio Garcia when he lost at Carnoustie in 2007. He had a three-shot lead going into that day. In fact, it was a six-shot lead over the guy who eventually won, Patrick Harrington. He shot a 73 that round. And his takeaway afterward, or a big part of his takeaway at least, was that he'd been unlucky. He had this quote, I always remember. He said, I'm playing against a lot of guys out there, more than the field. Now, what does that mean? It could mean a few things. But what it definitely communicates is that there are big forces aligned against him. And it always struck me as a particularly bad mindset because it's so negative. And how can you possibly succeed if you actually believe this? There's a quote from Norman to his caddy Bruce Edwards, which is often mistakenly placed at the 96 Masters, but it couldn't have been there because Edwards was already gone by then. But the reason they make that mistake is that it did involve a tournament with Nick Faldo. Basically, what happened is on the 17th hole, Norman had lost some kind of lead, and he said to Edwards... I guess it's better to be lucky than good. And Edwards was shocked because whatever tournament this was, he felt that Faldo had outplayed Norman. And what Norman said pissed him off. And he said back to him, I just want a caddy for someone who has heart. I mean, you can imagine that relationship didn't last very long after that. But it's a good indication of the two different perspectives. Edwards wants him to be a fighter. And Norman is very eager to see himself as, well, look, look what happened to me again. So, Norman goes into kind of a slump at this point. You know, that's, of course, by his high standards. There's speculation that he is spending too much time on his business interests, not working very hard. He doesn't really emerge for a couple of years. By 1993, though, he's back. Wins the Open Championship, beats Faldo there. That's his second and what will be his final major. We already talked about the 93 PGA, where he missed a four-foot putt, lost to Azinger in a playoff. 95, he shoots 73 on Sunday at Shinnecock again when 70 would have won it. And it's all leading to 96 and the Masters. So here we are, 96, the week that is going to define Norman's career, going to be the most memorable part of it, and the week did not start off well. Sam Wyman, in his book, When It Losing, notes that already Norman had back issues early in the week. In fact, Fred Couples heard about it. Couples always had back problems, so he sent his back guy, to Norman. He said, maybe you can help a little bit. Apparently it did help, because Norman came out and shot a 63 on Thursday. Followed that up with a 69, then a 71, which gave him his six-shot lead. But a few interesting things happened on that Saturday. The first had to do with his opponent, Nick Faldo. Faldo had to scramble to save par on the 18th to stay at seven under, Where if he had made bogey, Phil Mickelson was going to be in the final group instead of him. Mickelson at this point was a much younger man. He had never won a major yet. Frankly, not a huge threat, especially being so far behind Norman. Norman admits that he would have liked to have played with Mickelson. Mickelson was nice. They would have complimented each other's shots. It would have been a more pleasant atmosphere. Nick Faldo is a different beast. It's easy to forget now because we've seen him on TV for years as a broadcaster. He kind of remade his image after his playing days were over. But as a player, he was very intense, very private, pretty quiet in certain ways. Not someone who socialized and frankly, not someone who was extremely well liked by some of his peers. There are a lot of stories about that. It could make its own podcast. We won't get into it. But basically, Norman knew this wasn't going to be a friendly pairing. If anything, it was going to heighten the pressure on him. Even more importantly, Faldo was a killer. He had already won two Masters, along with three Open Championships. Interestingly, both of those green jackets came after a playoff, and both were comebacks. In 89, he erased a five-shot deficit to Ben Crenshaw. Then in 90, he was three shots behind Raymond Floyd before he came back. Paul Kimmage, the Irish writer, wrote about how this was a nightmare pairing for Norman. He interviewed Fanny Sunnison after Faldo's longtime caddy and she just had this thought on Saturday that you know the fact that we're in this final group means it's possible. She thinks today if it was anybody else in that group Norman wins and this is even considering that Faldo wasn't doing so hot either. He hadn't been winning a lot at that point I believe he was going through a bit of a tricky divorce. But Faldo says that his friend Bob Cotton said to him that Saturday, just remember something. And Faldo says what? And Cotton says, just remember, you're Nick Faldo. And Faldo, part of what makes him so confounding, is that he almost seems unaware at times of the effect he has, or even of what he's saying. Even in the documentary, 30 for 30, years later, he reacts with surprise when he hears that Norman went back to Augusta, and he says, quote, Wow. Was that tough for him? But I don't think I would be willing to be dragged back to somewhere where I'd really lost. Would you pay to go and watch a bad movie again? You wouldn't pay another 20 bucks for a movie and popcorn if you thought it was a crap movie, would you? That's, that's putting yourself through the ringer. I would have thought. Well, he's right, but it's a little rude, isn't it? Especially, you know, when you know Norman is going to see it eventually. Kimmage tells the story. And by the way, thank you to Declan Breen for sending that Kimmage article along. Tells a story that apparently Faldo has told people before, but not often, which is that he was invited to Greg Norman's 50th birthday party in 2005. It was before a tournament called the Heineken Classic in Melbourne. And there were, you know, taped messages from two American presidents, Clinton and Bush. Everybody's tributing this guy. And at some point, the mic is passed around and everybody's saying nice things about Norman. But that mic was never passed to Faldo. He wasn't in any of the tribute videos, and he was upset about it. At some point, he kind of walked away and left and went in his hotel room and stewed about it. He was very upset. And apparently when he told the story to Kimmage, he didn't get why. He didn't understand why he didn't get the mic. He didn't understand why this was happening. Kimmage had to be the one to tell him, come on, they're celebrating the guy as one of the great Aussie athletes. Why would they give any attention to you, the guy whose mere presence reminds everybody of this man's failures? The fellow didn't get that. A couple things happened to Norman, too, on that Saturday. One of them was Peter Dobriner, who was this longtime kind of gruff British golf writer. Saw him in the clubhouse, he was at the bar, and he said to Norman, Well, Greg, not even you can fuck this up. Meant as a joke, I guess, but really sort of a hell of a thing to say to the man at that moment. Then Peter Costas was having a conversation with a Golf Channel reporter, and he had noticed something interesting happening over the week, which is that Norman was playing with a stronger grip when he shot his 63. Things had changed a little bit. Then it weakened a little bit in the second round, and by the third round, it was back to where it normally had been before. And that Saturday, he wasn't playing the cleanest of rounds. The short game was excellent, which saved him. That's why he shot a 71 instead of you know something much higher. But Costas was thinking. This looks like a guy where the dam is about to break. So he thinks he's off the record. But what he says to the reporter, that, you know, Norman could be in some serious trouble here, gets onto television. And the next morning, Costas gets called in by Frank Cherkinian, the longtime CBS producer who says, look, did you tell everyone Norman was going to choke? Cherkinian is Norman's friend. Costas has no idea what he's talking about, but it turns out That Norman had watched this and had actually called Frank Cherkinian, who again, a friend of his, called him on Sunday morning, just hours before his tea time, to complain about it. And all Costas could think, and what he said to Cherkinian, was basically, if this is what Norman is spending his time doing that morning, he's in even more trouble than I thought. There was also, as Wyman writes, a personal issue that morning. It's still not clear today exactly what it was, but something with Norman and someone close to him, something happened there. Maybe there was a fight or something. And in later years, you know, Norman wouldn't say what it was, but he would say he wished he had just come clean to Butch Harmon, his swing coach, or his caddy, Tony Navarro, just kind of you know spilled his guts. But instead, he kept it inside. And all of this stuff created this almost toxic brew. And you can imagine his head in a terrible place that Sunday morning. And at the same time that Harmon is giving interviews that morning saying, you know, Norman's at peace with himself. The fact is he's a total and complete mess on the range, and he knew it. He told Harmon, you know, something is off here. Harmon knows he can't fix it right then, hours before the Sunday tea time. So instead he tries to instill him with confidence. He says, you look great. Norman says, no, it's not great. He is, to put it mildly, not ready to win the Masters. And Harmon's with Navarro, Norman's caddy, and they're saying to each other, who is this guy? This isn't the guy who left last night. All of this stuff, again, you can look at it as bad luck, but then you think, why does he take what a newspaper writer said to Hart, referencing De Briner? Why is he watching the Golf Channel? Why is he yelling about what Costas said? Whatever this personal issue is, that it may be stemmed from this same mindset. Did he kind of bring it on himself? In other words, it's back to the bad luck versus, you know, you did it to yourself kind of debate. Norman and Faldo tee off in the afternoon. And if the question on Sunday is, can you blow a six shot lead in one day, which has never been done before in a major? The answer is yes. and You can do it in 11 holes. First hole, Norman Bogie. Now five ahead. Sixth hole, Faldo Birdie. 4 ahead, 8th old, Faldo Birdie, 3 ahead, Ninth old, Norman Bogie. 2 ahead, 10th old, Norman Bogie. 1 ahead, 11th old, Norman Bogey, arriving at the par 3-12, the scores were tied. It is, in Weinman's words, swift and painstaking. Starts right away with a bogey on the first hole. He and Faldo both birdie number two. But Norman loses that stroke again on four. Then manages to make par for four straight holes while Faldo creeps to within three shots of the lead, doing his normal Nick Faldo thing, lurking. But while this is happening, Faldo can't help but notice that Norman is taking forever on his shots. Way longer than usual. It's very strange. Even on TV, you can see it. He's gripping and re-gripping the club if Norman was trying to hide the fact that, you know, inside his head he was a complete mess he's doing a very bad job about it because Faldo is all over it you look elsewhere on the leaderboard Phil Mickelson isn't making a move nobody else is either so it's down to the two of them and on number 9 things start to really fall apart Norman's approach on 9 you can't come up short as Ken Venturi said on the broadcast he does Hits it slightly thin, and the ball rolls off the green. He makes bogey. In the documentary, they have him watch this shot, and he says, that was the moment. Norman says, that was the uh-oh moment when he knew he was in trouble. Now it's a two-shot lead heading into the back. At best, it's going to be a war at best. That's now the best-case scenario. Number 10, Norman bogeys again. 11, he has a putt that can't be more than three feet. Doesn't play enough break another bogey and just like that it is tied heading to the famous 12th hole the par 3 over the water Faldo goes first it's a great shot he's kind of staring after it almost with a dogged expression on his face stops maybe 15 feet away Norman steps up to the tee Navarro says you can hear him on the broadcast he says stick to your target just over the bunker Norman hits it it hits the front ridge and rolls back into the water and frankly, at that point, there are still six holes to play, but the tournament is over. That's not hindsight. Everybody watching knew it. There are these tiny little bubbles of hope in the holes to come. He almost chips in for Eagle on 15. That's the um, famous clip you may remember. He's got his black hat, black pants, the black and white patterned shirt, and he misses it, and he kind of bends backwards. Rick Riley compared it to that famous YA Tittle photograph where he's you know, on his knees bleeding at the end of the football game. And then Norman rolls over onto his back. But Faldo birdies that hole. He still would have been one back even if he made it. And the fact is, even though he keeps it to a two-shot deficit, on 16, again, he hits it into the water. He makes double bogey again. By the time this is over, Faldo ends up winning by five shots. But it takes a while. It takes a while for it to be over. The end of that round is some of the most painful golf footage you can watch, even today. Everybody who watched it at the time remembers exactly how it felt. Sam Weinman and his friends left after Norman hit the water in 16, and I bet theirs is not the only story like that, because there's a certain point where you want to stop watching. And when Faldo made his birdie on 18, remember Riley said it was like a you know a man winning a clandestine hand of gin in the back of a church? He didn't really celebrate He had a sense of the moment and he knew it wouldn't have been right. He just hugged Norman and according to Norman said, don't let the bastards get you down. It's funny to think that the very next year, Tiger Woods won his first major at Augusta. I wonder now, and this may be hindsight, but I wonder if it served as a sort of palate cleanser for the greater golf world. Here was somebody with Norman's unbelievable talent, but guess what? He wasn't going to fold. He was going to play so hard even with a massive lead because he wanted the record, the scoring record at Augusta, he never assumed anything. You hear all kinds of stories about Tiger leading some obscure tournament, and he'll tell reporters, you know, this person in second, you know, whoever it was, somebody who wasn't even near his caliber, some journeyman, you know, he'd say, They're very dangerous. It's gonna be a tough fight. It's gonna be a gonna be a battle. We were one year away in ninety-six from the coming out party of that consummate winner. You can maybe even argue that the two most famous Masters tournaments ever, at least before 2019, were back-to-back in 96 and 97, and for very, very different reasons. Norman, as we said at the beginning, was not done experiencing heartache at Augusta, nor at the Majors. 99, he was in with a chance again, lost to Olathebel. And as if the universe wasn't cruel enough, the golf gods or whoever brought him back very late in the day, 2008, at the Open Championship, Where again, he led after 54 holes. They didn't really come close to holding on, but it was just enough to bring back hope for a second. Feels almost cruel. There are a lot of lessons to learn from Greg Norman. Wyman, in his book outlines many of them, but they exist as lessons for other people. As a golfer, Norman never got to benefit from them. You wonder maybe if he had had a sports psychologist or just a regular psychologist if things might have been different. Maybe he was very unlucky at times. Maybe his priorities were off. But in the end, we're seeking answers because on some level, we're seeking comfort. We want to know why it happened. We're fascinated. How can we keep it from happening to us in some way? But because there are no easy answers, because the mystery is sort of ineffable, we keep coming back to the scene of the crime just to watch. And I think the arc of Greg Norman is best described with the words of Haywood Brown, the American journalist. And Brandel Chambly quotes this in the ESPN documentary. Beyond it, I'm not sure there's much more to be said. And the quote is, The tragedy of life is not that man loses, but that he almost wins. Local Knowledge is produced by Greg Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Weinman. We use three songs for the music today, Rattlesnake Railroad by Brett Van Donzel, Sports Background by Music 4 Video, and The Red Soil by Sarah Ridley. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts, and we've got two others for you to check out too. Golf Digest Weekly Podcast, that's called The Loop, and a brand new podcast from Luke Curtinine called Golf IQ. Those are both out now. You can subscribe to them. Thanks very much for listening. Have a great day. The all-new TaylorMade Stealth 2 Carbonwood has arrived, completely redesigned with more carbon and even more forgiveness. all of which translates to lots of long, straight drives and finding fairways even when you miss the sweet spot. When TaylorMade set out to improve on the original Stealth Carbonwood, we weaved in even more carbon, to deliver distance and plenty of forgiveness. We call it far-giveness. Catch that drive a little off the toe? Not a problem for the Stealth 2. Just leave it to all that carbon to straighten things out. Hit your next drive off the heel, just stand back, admire your drive, and ask yourself, how the heel did I just carry that water hazard? That's far-giveness, and it's all thanks to carbon. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit TaylorMadeGolf.com.